He's been advisor to Presidents Clinton and Trump. And now, he's here to advise us all. Dick Morris is on 77 WABC. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right, here I am stuck in the middle with you. Well, stuck in the middle with you. Um, boy, uh, I thought that I got my, you know, midnight reverie out of the way on January 1st. But uh, then they come back on Friday, and I'm still up till midnight and celebrating at 3 in the morning uh, with McCarthy's victory. Uh, it was quite something. It but is 38 and partly. It was, okay, it was quite something. And uh, it, it's amazing that he that he prevailed. And, boy, the stuff that he took, the, the difficulty he overcame, overcame to become speaker is just incredible. He absolutely is still standing, but he's standing at the pl- at the podium, which makes all of the difference. Uh, Make no mistake about that. This is Donald Trump's victory. I spoke to him almost every day in the last week and three or four times uh, on Friday night when the vote was taking place. And he was working the phones constantly. He was in touch with all of the congressmen, their staff, their donors, their influencers, and uh, really uh, helped put the package together. And what's extraordinary about it is that he did not use the tactics that speakers and leaders have used in the past. It wasn't the question of beat some people up and pay off others. What he did was to bring that majority about by substantive reforms in the House. And he made, he basically took the agenda, he and McCarthy, they did it together, took the agenda that the right has been pushing in Congress ever since Boehner and Ryan were Speaker, and uh, certainly under Pelosi. And that agenda was totally ignored. And it's a little thing called democracy. Uh, The history of the House goes back to Czar Reed, the the speaker in the 1900, who was called Czar Reed, Jack Reed. And uh, the idea of an autocratic, dictatorially run House is, is tradition. Sam Rayburn was the speaker during most of the 60s and 50s and 60s. And he ran the House with an iron hand, and that became the model for Speaker. John Boehner, when he was sober, which was occasional, um, was a uh, was was a very bad Speaker uh, because he was just so self-involved. He never really listened to anybody else, and he had enough votes so he didn't have to. Then Paul Ryan took over, and Ryan was completely in love with his own ideas. Uh, he had thought them out planned them, and uh, and that was that. And he wasn't going to listen to anything. I remember meeting with Ryan when he first became Speaker, and he said, the key thing we have to tackle here is to cut Medicare spending. And I said, you'll get killed, and but nobody will vote Republican again. And he said, yeah, but we're headed for this huge debt crisis. And I said, well, what's the what year? He said, well, it'll begin now, but it'll really get bad in 10 years. He said, 10 years? We can lose five elections in that interim. Back off it. 
And uh, at one point I said, don't try to solve all the problems since we got bounced from the Garden of Eden. <laughs> Focus on the stuff immediately in front of you and do whatever you have to do. But don't don't go crazy. And he just ran right through the advice and uh, ended up being a disastrous speaker. And, of course, Nancy Pelosi is the queen of the, was the absolute monarch of the body and uh, got the Democrats into a lockstep. The idea that there were, there were 200 or 300 Democrats in Congress is ridiculous. There was one, and she just replicated herself like cloned herself 230 times to produce a majority. And, uh, but this, but Trump and McCarthy have totally changed that. First of all, when a budget comes up for a vote, right now the congressmen have the option of voting yes or no. Well, thanks a lot, guys. Uh, but now they can say, I like the defense budget, but I don't like the Medicare budget. I like the interior budget, but I don't like these, uh, the earmark of building that stupid bridge in Kentucky for McConnell. I'm going to vote against that. And they can vote on individual earmarks and vote on individual budget bills so that the budget really becomes an expression of congressional will. And uh, it's it's just a total change. And then the Rules Committee, which is sort of like the Committee of Public Safety during the French Revolution that decides who to guillotine, has now been expanded uh, to include more conservative members and to let more people in. Uh, their function was basically a red light to stop stuff from reaching the floor. And uh, now they've they've changed that and given it much more latitude. So I think that this is a new era in the House of Representatives. And I think that it's, a, it's a, the beginning of a theme of democracy and openness and transparency in our government. And for example, the Republicans wanted a special committee to investigate the FBI and the surveillance state that's emerging. And uh, the traditional people said, come on, we have the Judiciary Committee. Don't undermine the power of these members who waited in the line year after year after year and moved up in seniority. Don't take it away from them by convening a special committee that gets all the publicity and all the glory. That's how the House works. And McCarthy said, no, I want a special committee of really good people, and I'll designate it myself. And I'll let the conservative caucus, the so-called Freedom Caucus, really determine a lot of that stuff. So he had McCarthy hatched this deal, and then he and Trump sold it. And uh, Trump was on the phone with, like, the, the 20 or – it started about 40 people that were not on board, the traditionalists who didn't want the House to change. And Trump brought them the fact, the fact that it has to change, it has to become more democratic, welcome to the 21st century kind of thing. They weren't in the 20th, they were in the 19th. So this was a march of a couple of, of over a hundred years for them. But they got in there and they, and they really accepted it. And, uh, Donald Trump persuaded them to be in the majority. It was really an incredible performance. And now it left Mr. McCarthy.
Let's go to Ralph in New Jersey. Yeah, Ralph, how are you? Hey, Dick, can you uh, hear me? Okay. Hey, uh, hey, thank you. Happy hang, New Year, uh, Dick. Hang on a sec, guys, before we go, Ralph. My buddy, uh, Doug DePiro, is remote because he's in Mar-a-Lago. He's been with Trump all week and uh, wants you to know, chime in. Yeah. How are oh, you? I didn't think you could hear me. I'm sorry, Dick. Um, I spoke to him, Donald Trump, you know, the president, that morning after the vote. And he came up to me. He goes, we won. Because I was on the phone all night with these guys. And, you know, he was really proud of it. It was really great. So I just wanted to. But I like what he told you. I did it. He did. Well, I didn't want to. I didn't want to push his ego. He did. He goes, he he, he pointed at himself. He goes, I did that. That's how it happened. Yeah, he you know, did. You have to have. You have to be a leader. And he was really proud of it. I mean, that guy, he's a really great guy. He is not full of himself like people put it at all. I mean, he is a little bit. You know, he's great. But he's a decent guy. But, you know, um, I, I really was. But hold on one second. One second. He said he likes me better than you. Oh, okay. <laughs> all right. Well, Doug is retouching all of the renovating, updating all of the artwork in Mar-a-Lago. Um, as he's doing sculptures and uh, the marble staircases and the murals. Yeah, all and kinds of stuff. All yeah. of that all stuff. All the murals. And and, yeah, it's great. Donald I love it. Trump is totally in love with him. Um, all right. Take it easy. But, but you know, uh, Trump really is, uh, it, it, this is his achievement. And everybody yes. says the House will be too, will be weakened and the Speaker can't lead. But that's baloney. Now for the first time he can. Uh, to call right. what Pelosi did as leadership is like, you know, saying Hitler led Nazi Germany. I don't mean oh, to imply God. that she's Hitler. I yeah. take that back. But right, a dictator right. runs a country. Um, right. Yeah, so, Ralph, you were saying. Okay. Thank you once again, uh, Dick, for uh, taking my call. Um, I want to say, say this to Kevin McCarthy. Godspeed and good luck, and I want for you to deliver your message now. I mean, your promises. Okay, yeah. which is the three items I, I I want to be looked into is dividing corruption, the southern border, and China, yeah. especially China. Do not walk back on China. Do not, you know, yeah. um, well, I think, you know, bow over. I, I think you're right, Ralph. And China is a topic that infuses all the others, the surveillance right. state and everything that's going on. Uh, absolutely. Let's go to... Um, uh, Joe in Long Island. Hey, Joe. Yes, good afternoon. I have a question. Now, as you know, the House is going to be conducting investigations. Suppose the people from the Biden administration defy the congressional subpoenas. How realistic is it that a Biden Justice Department is going to prosecute them? Great question, Joe. Totally unrealistic. They never will. And they can uh, they can use those subpoenas for toilet paper if they want. Um, because they'll never go after them, they'll never, they'll never pursue them. But the point is that if they don't testify, their point of view will never come out, and the only point of view will be the point of view of what actually happened and the conservative take on things. So in their own self-defense, they're going to testify. This isn't a criminal trial yet, and uh, and I think that I think it'll be very effective. I think these hearings are going to totally change the FBI and the Justice right. Department. They remind me and of the... you got two years. Yep, you do. They remind me and of the... Frank... Two years, once they go through all the deposition and everything, then if we take the House and the Senate and the White House, then we could get into the uh, criminal thing. You got it, Doug. And, you know, um, thank you, Ralph. 
you know, the, uh, the thing is that, uh, we really have a potential here to get to the bottom of it that understand it. Frank Church was yeah. the senator from Idaho and he, in the 1970s, he investigated the CIA and they had, they assassinated foreign leaders. They would overthrow foreign governments. Uh, they brought those tactics to the U.S. and began to undermine protests from the left and the right. And Church stopped it. He just absolutely closed it down. And the CIA has behaved itself ever since. And the FBI hasn't, but the CIA has. And I think it's going to go, FBI will find its turn now. He's been advisor to Presidents Clinton and Trump. And now he's here to advise us all. Dick Morris is on 77 WABC. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in the middle with you. One of the things that uh, the House is not going to do is to be able to budget, to cut the budget, to get rid of the quadrillion-dollar spending that Joe Biden passed, uh, because Mitch McConnell gave it all away. Mitch McConnell uh, allowed a lame-duck Congress that included five or six senators that had one foot out the door and absolutely permitted them to lock in the budget through the end of 2023. With no increase in the debt, with no increase in the debt limit or no holding of the debt limit. And, uh, it's absolutely, it's as if he stripped Congress of its constitutional control over the budget. I gave it all away. Boy, he sure did. Absolutely the worst deal you can imagine. Um, forget about cutting any spending until the end of 23. Um, I mean, we're not going to be able to curb inflation. We're not going to be able to hold, hold down the national debt. This stuff is just gone. Uh, Congress, uh, no longer has this authority. And he did it through this lame duck session. And he had the votes of the rhinos and the retirees who combined to do this. And it is just disgusting and disgraceful. And we have to remember that Mitch McConnell is a malignant force within our party. Trump is opposing him. Trump will succeed, I think, in knocking him out. And I think the primaries of 2024 for Senate, we'll talk about those next week, um, I think are going to feature a McConnell candidate and a Trump candidate in each state, and I think Trump candidates will always win. And I think McConnell and his ilk will be gone. Uh, when you look at wow, Kevin good. McCarthy's reforms in the House, that's what's coming to the Senate. So um, let's go to Jerry in Passaic. Hey, Jerry. Mitch McConnell reminds me of someone during the Constitution, like Benedict Arnold. That's <laughs> who he reminds me of. Yeah, well, he's, uh, when, when he's on, usually I play the great pretender um, because he pretends to be a Republican, and he absolutely has led, led us off a cliff. It was unbelievable. Oh, mumbles, he did. mumbles McConnell. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, let us go to Corey in Huntington. Hello, Mr. Morris. How are you? Hey, Corey. How are you doing? Well, a pleasure to get through to you. I, I think this was a great victory for Donald Trump with uh, getting the rule changes, and it's a breath of fresh air for a change. I'm really concerned, though, in two years, 
that if the RNC doesn't embrace ballot harvesting and mail-in ballots, I don't care who's running. I don't think we can win, win in the swing states. You can have uh, President uh, Biden running from a nursing home, and he's going to win. Yeah. And I'm really concerned that the RNC doesn't have the will to do this. Yeah. Can you? I agree with you completely. Uh, and let's dissect this. Um, the first thing is early voting. I don't think anybody objects to that. And we need to have huge amounts of early voting. Um, don't tell me about polling in the last two weeks before an election. Tell me how the early votes are coming in. Tell me how many Republicans and how many Democrats have voted. And that's the important stat. Uh, mail-in voting, I think that you'll never be able to change this system until you have paper ballots, not electric ballots, electronic ballots. And um, I think that that's a vital element here. I don't care how it gets there, the mail-in or in-person drop-off. But I do care about two things. First, that it be on paper. And secondly, that it will be good voter identification. So if you want to have mail-in ballots, what you need to have is photo IDs for people to show that they are the people that they say they are. And you can do that in part by putting the last four digits of the Social Security number on the ballot and uh, and having people fill that in and not counting it if they're not. Uh, those reforms, though, I think are are absolutely vital. Um, let's go to John in Reno, Nevada. Hi, John. Hi, Mr. Morris. Uh, the question I had today was, now that McCarthy is the speaker and everybody's been sworn in and we're getting down to business, what is the time you expect in weeks or days before we actively have an investigation of Hunter Biden? Yeah, it might be hours, not <laughs> weeks oh, or days. I think they're just chomping at the bit to do that. But let's change your terminology. Who the hell is Hunter Biden? This is an investigation of Joseph Biden. Uh, it is Joseph Biden, the president, who accepted millions of dollars from the Chinese from two sources. First, Hunter Biden's investments and the kickbacks he got from the Bank of China, which he says in emails on his laptop, He's going to share and kick back to the big guy, meaning his father. And secondly, above the board, in plain view, Biden set up the Institute for Peace and Diplomacy at the University of Pennsylvania. And it was started with a $22 million gift from China. And that institute paid Biden a million dollars a year for the four years that he was out of office, uh, having left as vice president and not running for president yet. And the, and the Secretary of State, um, Blinken was on, was the executive director of that institute. So Biden and his whole administration were basically on the payroll of the Chinese Communist Party during that period. And uh, I think all of this is going to come out and I think it's going to be absolutely, uh, hellacious for the, for the Democrats. Now, I'm going to, uh, over the Christmas holidays, I've done a good deal of research on how the left got to be so powerful. Uh, how did they become the the 40-foot giant that they are now in politics? And uh, I relied in this on the work of a guy who we had on this show about two weeks ago, Oswald Guinness, who is a theologian, a, a scholar, philosopher, and uh, a British. He's an author, uh, and his current book is uh, The Magna Carta of Humanity, um, and the subtitle is uh, 
Sinai's revolutionary faith in the future of freedom, where he talks about the book of Exodus being the fundamental founding document of democracy. A fascinating book. But the stuff that I paid attention to in that, particularly, and that I want to share with you today, is how the left got started, how they went from being a fringe in the Democratic Party to being absolutely at the core of it. Now, this will take a little bit of a while. I'm going to read the column that I wrote, and, uh, and, and I'll add lib stuff through it. But I want to really explain it so that everybody understands who they, who they are, how they came to be powerful, and how we can deal with them. Okay? So here goes. The left has adopted a new Marxism. The old one by Karl Marx was based on economics and the exploitation of workers by the wealthy elite, the capitalists. Oz Guinness explains how leftist professor Herbert Marcuse, know that name, is one of the, the so-called great or most influential figures of the modern era, and others overhauled the Marxist doctrine to focus on cultural dominance, not economic exploitation, as its core message. Cultural dominance not economic exploitation. In doing so, it shifted its constituency from the working class, which was never quite comfortable with its dogma and is now Republican voting for Trump, to the cultural elites throughout the world. And that change where they, they stopped being, Marxism stopped being a working man's thing and instead became an elitist thing is, is fundamental to what we're dealing with now. They focused on liberation, transformation, and revolutionary change. Now, in the 60s, you remember the, the, the culture there, hell no, we won't go, burning draft cards, burning flags, and Marcuse calls that the great refusal, where people just said, no, I'm not playing part of this, I'm not going to be part of this. And this habit of refusal morphed and grew into the current cancel culture that refuses to embrace the core ideals of Americans about history, democracy, idealism, race relations, pluralism, economic progress, self-improvement, and the sense of justice. So in the 60s, we learned to say no to the government when they wanted us to go to Vietnam. We learned to say no when they wanted us to shut up and be quiet and just go along with the draft. And we learned to stand up against the government. And then we had Watergate that taught us that the government was capable of great evil and that we had to be willing to call it and stop it from happening. And he calls that the great refusal that was the precursor of what we're dealing with now. We'll continue this when we come back. Hi, it's Lou Dobbs for Priority Gold, America's precious metals dealer. These are volatile times with high inflation, soaring debt, wars on multiple continents, and rising financial stress. Central banks are buying gold to diversify their reserves, so are many Americans. Call Priority Gold and find out how precious metals can help you diversify your portfolio. They're highly rated and happy to help. Call 1-866-303-6357 or get a free gold guide at PriorityGoldGuide.com. That's Priority PriorityGoldGuide.com. It's Sunday, and you know what that means. Here's Dick Morris on 77 WABC. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. So what I'm doing now is uh, elaborating a theory developed by 
Oswald Guinness, we had on the show two weeks ago, about how the left got such power. What's it made of? How is it? How does it? Why? How does it control the media? How does it control the campuses? How does it increasingly control our society? And I present this to you because we need to understand how it is to understand how to stop it. And I talked about Herbert Marcuse, the left-wing philosopher from Berkeley, who said that the this all grew out of the refusal to go along with the government in the Watergate era and the Vietnam era. And Marcuse borrowed a phrase from Mao Zedong, who in his history had what was called the Long March, which was actually retreat from South China to North China after his movement of communists was almost wiped out in South China. And he led his followers on a thousand-mile trek through the snow to relocate their base. Uh, Marcuse calls for a long march uh, through the cultural and economic, inst- the cultural and educational institutions of society, preaching the doctrine of refusal to accept our societal narratives. In other words, he said, go through, walk, do a long march through society and go into every institution and every gatekeeper and try to change it, try to bring it to a, the cancel culture we've been talking about. The long march was intended to change the way our cultural leaders reacted to our problems. Instead of bolstering a constructive national narrative that understood our values and institutions while accepting the need for reform, it led to a total rejection of almost everything. It became known as the cancel culture. Critical race theory is one expression of that, but the revolution extended to the realms of climate change, sexuality and mores, gender fluidity and changes, particularly sweeping with the changes in our educational system that sought to undermine our collective narrative about American exceptionalism and enlisted teachers as instruments spreading the new gospel of cultural Marxism. The concept of cultural Marxism means that taking the techniques of the communists and the Marxists and applying it to changing the culture of America. Traditional Marxism seeks to bring about change in economic society by giving the government control of the means of production, socialism. In the new Marxism, the goal was to change the culture of our information society by giving the left control of the means of information dissemination and education so that its doctrines and dogma would spread throughout the entire society. Take over the schools, take over the colleges, infiltrate them, conquer them, run them, and in the course of it, indoctrinate the students that are coming through it. And the concept of indoctrination was to set up this left-wing view, this cancel culture view, that then spread throughout society as these kids became adults and became leaders in their fields, became the top lawyers, became the top businessmen, more importantly, became the top reporters in newspapers and media, came to own TV stations, came to be the editorial boards, all of that stuff, and was all designed to take a, basically what I see as a, as a disease that that incubated in our schools and spread it to the rest of society. And because we had scholarships and student lending, everybody went through the universities and uh, it, they, they could carry their message all over the place. And part of this was helped by Google, which centralized all human knowledge 
in one search engine. And that made it possible to attack this choke point and spread the new gospel of counterculture and woke ideology. Uh, because everybody used Google to find their information, they were able to basically bias the librarian, who would keep sending people to the Marxist part of the bookcases, not to the American part. And, uh, the, and that generation grew up knowing only the leftist alternatives. And then after they stopped, they left college, they went into uh, journalism and business and writing, and they brought that bias and that, that orientation with them. Then the young billionaires got into the act. Having themselves been nurtured on the cultural Marxism affect, they used their financial means, which are huge, so much more than the, than the Gilded Age industrialists, John D. Rockefeller and Cornelius Vanderbilt. Those guys were pikers uh, compared to the current generation of leftist uh, billionaires. And the organizations and causes founded by this movement are constantly changing. Think of them as a beehive of causes with a constant ferment, constant coming in and out, uh, like Black Lives Matter to the Green Revolution to racial equity preference for minorities to reproductive freedom to trans studies and every imaginable form of involve, of movement. But they all had in common being powered by the cultural Marxist revolution and the financial power of its billionaires. So the cultural Marxists extended their power through the malignant growth of slanted information, one-sided narratives, false facts, and distorted perceptions. It particularly focuses on exploiting the envies of the various racial, ethnic, and social cultures against one another. Uh, So diverse was its penetration and so extensive that it became impossible to root out just the cultural Marxist, just as they intended when they embarked on their long march through our cultural institutions. So the the concept here is that the the core doctrine of the left is envy. When I did work in Russia, when I ran Boris Yeltsin's campaign, it became clear to me that the main ethos of Russian society, Russian communism, was envy. I can't stand that these guys have money and these guys have power, and I want it. And more importantly, I want them to die rather than have it. Um, Nancy Friday, the psychologist, wrote a book called Jealousy, where she differentiates jealousy from envy. She said jealousy is a constructive emotion. I want what you have, and I'll work hard to get it. Envy is a negative emotion. It says I want you to die rather than have what you have. Um, there was a, there's a joke in Russia that Ivan died and he went to heaven and St. Peter said, is there anything I can do for you here? Ivan had died in the fire and he was a very religious guy. And when St. Peter said that, he said, you know, my next door neighbor, Boris, I want him to die in a fire too. That's my wish. And uh, that undergird, that, that sense of envy, uh, underscores a lot of what's going on. And their central goal was hegemony power overall of society. You see, to the cultural Marxist, there's no objective reality, no right or wrong, only the power of cultural hegemony imposing a worldview on the people. The moral relativism deliberately leaves no room for God or religion, or the lu- and the lust for hegemony 
imposes a strong anti-religious bias, just like in the French Revolution. So the left doesn't seek to persuade people. It seeks to control them. And the idea in it is that they there is no objective reality. Nothing is right. Nothing is wrong. And when you look through American history, the the bias is incredible. Um, there, there was no objective commitment to freedom by the founding fathers. Uh, there was no objective commitment to, uh, to saving the world from communism and from restoring freedom throughout the world after World War II. World War II itself was just a struggle for power between two regimes, no moral component to it. And since there are no objective truths, right and wrong is determined by power and tyranny. Everything, every human relationship, every institution of society is a manifestation of the power of one over the other. Whites exploit blacks. Men so exploit. The guy with the power and he tells everyone what to do, basically. Right, exactly. Whites exploit blacks. Men exploit women. The old exploit the young. The rich exploit the poor. Europeans exploit indigenous peoples. Straits exploit gays, bosses exploit workers. And each victimized cohort has an organization, a movement dedicated to its, to its elimination. Mao Zedong said power stems from the barrel of a gun. Well, in this case, power stems from the envy of one group of people against another. And that's the core belief of the left. The singular focus of, of this revolutionary movement is that the, the, I'm sorry, the singular feature of this revolutionary movement is that it can never succeed. It can never win. Um, look, we went through racial equality. We eliminated slavery. We, uh, we educated the minority populations. We, uh, we had affirmative action. We integrated the schools. Uh, we did everything we possibly could. And yet the movement remains as if we're still back in the days of slavery. And uh, the result is that the that there's no capacity to succeed. These issues never get solved. It's perpetual grievance. Um, there's always somebody richer. There's always somebody more powerful. Uh, to minorities, there's always somebody whiter and more uh, more more discriminatory. And the imagined and real grievances of these folks. Uh, absolutely overtakes their whole view. Cultural Marxism has no room for the individual. It doesn't matter who gets the Nobel Prize or the gold medal or becomes president or who gets what financial reward. The group, the cohort, the aggrieved group of people, the envious group, must move up or down together with unity powered by a common sense of victimization and a resulting tribal demand for unity. That's why we can't break into the black vote. Uh, it's, it's almost tribal demand for unity. And if somebody takes advantage of individual success, they're just, they're just copping out. Uh, and when we, uh, elect a black president, or when we, uh, have African Americans voting in direct proportion to their population, as we do in Congress now, they're 12% of the population are blacks and they're 12% of the Congress, uh, that doesn't solve anything. They are perpetually a victim and perpetually seeking power to overcome their victimhood. That's a lot to take in. Take in. <clears throat> I, hope you, I hope you followed me on it. 
That was amazing. How, what's the longest a regime has held with this type of oppression? Well, the longest is the Enlightenment that set up the idea of a information-based society and in, and a freedom-based society. And that was founded really in the mid-18th century, around 1770-1780, and has lasted through today. But the counterculture is challenging it, and it's saying that there are no truths, there are no verities. There's just envy and class conflict goes on. But whereas Marxism says the class conflict is the employer against the worker, here they say the class conflict is the, is the conventional society versus the cancel culture. It's Sunday, and you know what that means. Here's Dick Morris on 77 WABC. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. <coughs> so now what do we do about it? How Hello do we, there. How do we counter that power of the left? Well, what we have to do is to retrace us that the retrace the steps that the left took when Herbert Marcuse called for them to take a long march through cultural institutions and gatekeepers. Now we have to retrace their steps in their long march to counter and offset the propaganda in each of the institutions they've corrupted. But before we begin the long march, let's realize that our best defense against the evils of cultural Marxism is our own spirited and voluble oppositions to its tenets. Once we've understood its roots and grasped the extent of its branches, we can prune it back and ultimately uproot this dangerous weed. In our free society, we can't use government to police entertainment or, in most cases, news reporting. But it's for us in the marketplace to do so. We've already done some of that when we told CNN how much we hated it, and their ratings have dropped by almost half. And uh, and they're they're absolutely uh, CNN is 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 basically almost broke uh, because we didn't like it because we didn't like that coverage. But our vigilance must extend further. We must direct our purchasing dollar to the companies and vendors who are willing to stand up against cultural Marxism and say so. On TV, watch Newsmax. You want to do home improvements and repairs? Use Home Depot. You want to have. <laughs> Pillows and bedding, you know the answer. Mike Lindell, use your <laughs> use your money and your credit card to back up the forces of change. You want to eat out at a right. fast food place? Drive past the McDonald's and past the Burger King and past the Wendy's and go to Chick-fil-A, which is owned by cultural conservatives. Right. There's a lot we can do, but there's a lot we can do through government action. We have to start where Marcuse started in the colleges and universities lately transformed into hotbeds of cancel culture and wokeness. To do so, we must wield the power of the federal government extensively. We'll never root out woke hegemony over the higher, over our higher education institutions uh, and without federal power. There's no reason to transcend the First Amendment. We must use the vast and expansive network of federal aid, subsidies, contracts, loans, and scholarships that undergird the financial base of leftist higher education to counter the counterculture. Um, the precedent here is that when we tried to integrate it at schools in the South and the uh, Southerners refused to budge, 
rather than having to send the army into every college or to every school, we said that if you want, we said that if you want federal aid, you've got to integrate. And the schools had become dependent on federal aid and they had no choice but to do right. that. When we wanted everybody to wear seat belts, uh, we could require it and give out tickets. But the main thing we did was we told states that unless you start to enforce seat belts and a certain percentage of your drivers use seat belts, you won't get any federal highway money. And we yeah. used that to make them, to bend them to our will. And we need to insist that federal student aid and spending on higher ed and university research and consulting contracts follow an America First MAGA agenda. One, require free speech on campuses that get federal aid and contracts. Two, ban racial and other discriminatory preferences in institutions that get federal funding. Soon the Supreme Court's going to rule on affirmative action. We must take care to use federal funds to promote to the limit merit-based programs to the extent that the court decision allows them. Three, require as a condition of getting a scholarship, getting contractual funding, getting financial supports, that no program of any college or university block, impede, restrict, denigrate, or limit free speech in any way except to prevent imminent violence. Four, require that institutions receiving federal aid guarantee that faculty and administrative appointments and tenure decisions balance ideological and partisan views to present a true diversity of opinion. We don't let them discriminate on the basis of race or gender or sexual orientation or geography. Let's not let them bias based on ideology and partisanship. I had a conversation once with the president of Williams College, who was right after the 04 election, and I said, so how did the faculty vote? And he said, I hope 100%. I said, for who? And he said, for Kerry, of course. And the, the and, and I said, don't you have any conservatives on your faculty, your political science department? And the head of the department was at our lunch. And he said, no, no, we don't grant tenure or appointments to any conservatives. And that's the fifth point. Among federally funded institutions, ban ideological bias in Ph.D. dissertation topics and require that they reflect a full range of views and opinions so we can turn out new faculty unencumbered by culture of Marxism. That's the college agenda. We've got to take this fight down to elementary and secondary schools. Public schools have become super spreaders of the pandemic of cultural Marxism. Through their curricula, teaching personnel, union rules, and administrative bias, they assure that our children are all put through the ringer to make them conform to the dictates of woke ideology. To counter this trend, we must pass federal legislation requiring that all school districts, as a condition of federal funding, create a comprehensive voucher system where the funds allocated to public education can be equally available to students in private, church, parochial, and homeschooling. We should demand that public schools receiving federal funds not bias funding based on political views or, or partisan orientation. And as a precondition of federal funding, we have to require that elementary and secondary education follow the same rules we suggest for higher education. So, and then the last point is we have got to limit the power of social media. Cultural Marxism spread through social media to all parts of our nation. We must treat social media platforms as utilities, 
granting their quasi-monopoly status in return for obedience to certain rules. Donald right. Trump laid out a sweeping agenda to use government power to restore free speech in his address on December 15th. I played this on the show. Amend Section 230 of the Communication Decency Act to permit a private lawsuits, including lawsuits by state attorney generals against social media platforms to enforce political neutrality and prohibit partisan bias or censorship. Two, ban any federal employee or contractor from attempting to restrict free speech by calling it disinformation or misinformation without proof. Trump said within hours of my inauguration, he'd sign an executive order banning federal agencies from colluding with others to censor or otherwise limit speech by individuals. And um, Trump proposed, and I support, have all parties involved in the new online censorship regime uh, be investigated for possible violations of federal civil rights law, campaign finance law, federal elections law, securities law, and so forth and so on. So this is a very active agenda requiring federal leadership. Uh, Trump, I think, is on board with this. I think he gets it in a way nobody else does because he's the chief victim of all of this. Uh, He's the guy that's been screwed by this. And the more he shifts his critique of the 2020 election away from the ballot box stuffing to the censorship of the media and of the Biden laptop, uh, the more he can make this case. So, uh, so I'm pretty, uh, I'm pretty happy about this. This is great, Dick. This is perfect. Let's go to Judy in Manhattan. Hey, Judy. Uh, yes, sir. I, I'm wondering, uh, about the impact of these international NGO groups, especially UNESCO's plan education for world citizen, citizenship activism and its uh, manifestation in the Princeton plan that has really transformed local schools into regional ones. There are all sorts of regional council uh, control taken away from uh, PTAs, local uh, parent uh, teacher. Judy, I I, I need to cut you off because we're approaching the end of the show, but man, are you right. And uh, Eileen and I wrote a book 10 years ago called Here Come the Black Helicopters, where we talk about the international government through the U.N. imposing itself on American democracy. And uh, I'm going to be doing subsequent shows about this. Uh, But the idea is they use a cause like global warming or climate change to impose a view on everybody, or in this case, COVID vaccination, to impose fear factors, right, to impose a view on everybody, and they do it through the organizations of the U.N. Judy, I love what you're saying. Stay tuned That's to my great. show. Let's go to Tony in Clifton. Hi, Tony. Hi. I'm really excited because for the past three or four months, I've been thinking about what President Trump was saying about the Constitution and tweaking and changing, and Jefferson who said, our Constitution and our government bodies are living things. And I think what has evolved is the antithesis of what our our founding fathers wanted, which was freedom. And so the only way to fight against Marxism is to go back to our roots on what freedom is yeah. and do education and bring it to the schools. So I'm excited. Well, Tony, and 
you're great. I agree with you. You know, the um, the only thing I'd say is we do not need to change our constitutional structure. Uh, we can do everything we need to do within it. You just right. look at how the federal government made sure schools were integrated, made sure people used seatbelts, made sure people got vaccines. Those powers can be used instead to assure freedom and lack of censorship and ideological openness. Uh, all I'm asking for is open debate and free debate without shouting people down and without trying to control the process. And I think that right. we can really do that. Let's go to um, Jack and Hackensack. No rhyme. Hey, Jack and Hackensack. Hey, Jack. Bad reception here. Let's go to Sandra in New Jersey. Hi, Sandra. Hi, Sandra. Hi, Sandra. Can you give, hi, can you, Doug, can you give Donald a big bulkish for me? Dick, you said today that he, thank you, I would love that. Dick, you said today that Donald Trump was working behind the scenes to make what happened yep. happen. I'm so, yep. oh yeah, he's yep. some leader and he did great and I'm happy with the outcome. And I know that in his speech he gave, I believe, the promises he said he'll hopefully keep. But my concern is, you know, life has its twists and turns. What happens if this party decides they want to indict Donald Trump? Do you think they will? And I, if they do? I think, I think there's a shot they will. Uh, I think there's a shot that they can convict him. This is all a Washington, D.C. grand jury filled with Democrats. Uh, but um, I don't believe it's going to make a damn bit of difference. None of, the things, stronger. none of the things they're trying to indict him for would disqualify him from being president. And uh, I think that it'll make him stronger. You know, Kierkegaard said, that which doesn't kill Nietzsche, I'm sorry, said, that which doesn't kill me makes me stronger. And I think in this case, that's absolutely Rick true. Morris, it's an honor to be on the show with you. Well, good. We got gotten to the weeds today. I hope you guys are okay with it. That was amazing. Thank you. Thank you. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com. 